best CEOs I've ever worked with and founders feel like when they're in strategic meetings, they're pulling knowledge into themselves from other people. So they're not arrogant to think, I can't learn anything from anybody and I'm just going to figure it out my own way. They're smart enough to be like, oh, I'm going to steal every piece of knowledge I can from anyone that's ever touched any kind of relative, you know, relative component of my business. I'm going to internalize that and then I'm going to be arrogant and I'm going to drive to success. Those individuals we work extremely well with because we are a treasure trove of knowledge and skills. So if they come in and they're like, oh, I can use all this. Oh, you all work for me now. Okay, let's go on this journey together. It works really, really well. If they step in and they're like, no, 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 I got this. You don't need to be in my business. I've learned it all. I'm going to figure it all out. That has almost always failed in my mind, whether it's inside science or outside science. And I think that there's like kind of a social construct of like the best founders are super arrogant. They definitely have an arrogance. I definitely agree with that. But they also have a curiosity and that curiosity can drive a ton of special success. And certainly a curious founder can find a way to jump two years forward through intelligence gathering with other individuals. And we're just a big platform for that. So that's what I look for. But that's also what I look for in my personal investing, right? Like, I think it's just a good quality for founders. Hello, I'm your host, Mike Elb, and this is the Consumer VC Podcast, where we discuss the intersection of venture capital and consumer innovation. If you're enjoying the show, also subscribe to my newsletter at theconsumervc.com, where you'll receive all new episodes straight to your inbox and a weekly recap of all the consumer deals that are happening. All content and episodes are for informational and entertainment purposes only and is not investment advice. Our guest today is Mike Jones, who's one of the co-founders of Science Inc. Science Inc. is a venture studio and fund that develops and invests in consumer-focused businesses. Some of their portfolio companies include Liquid Death, Dollar Shave Club, and Grove Collaborative. Mike previously founded Useplane and Savo Media and served as a CEO of MySpace. We discuss how he assesses what founders he wants to work with, what truly makes a good idea, how Liquid Death came together, their growth opportunities, how he met Mike C, and what he learned from Dollar Shave Club about viral content, and much, much, much more. This is a really interesting conversation about consumer. Without further ado, here's Mike. Mike, thanks for taking the time. How are you? I'm good. How are you? I'm doing great. Doing great. Thanks. Um, want to start with, with, a, with a bit of the origin story of science. How did you co-found science and what was the overall vision? Sure. Well, um, I mean, if, you know, thinking about the beginning of science is kind of going a little bit further back on like how I ended up building all these companies. So early days in college, I started a business that a company essentially eventually sold to AOL and AOL is kind of like my first job. Like I'd started the software company and it got pretty big and then um, jumped into AOL and I became a pretty active angel investor at the time because, you know, my partners and I basically had bootstrapped the business. So I started, you know, seed investing a series of companies in our, kind of the early days of Los Angeles when there was just a handful of us doing early stage angel deals. Um, you know, over the time, my time at AOL came to a conclusion. I worked in private equity. I went over to MySpace, kind of did that heavy lift over there. And then coming out of it, I wanted to return to early stage activities, but I wanted more than just being a check writer. Like I wanted to basically leverage the operational expertise. And I'd kind of seen it with my angel deals where we had done deals where like the company failed and I'm like, God, I wish they had reached out to us. We probably could have helped. I could have helped, et cetera. Like it was this, like, it kind of felt like there was this massive binary outcome. Either I got this call that was like, congratulations, we exited. You made a bunch of money or sorry, we're shutting it down. And I was like, this is silly. Like I've had thousands of employees, like can get to kind of anybody. Why, why can't I help here? So I tapped on the shoulder of Peter Pham, who, you know, was this notorious fundraiser 
um, Tom Dare, who was my legacy CFO, who'd worked for you know with me for numerous companies, and Greg Gilman, who I've worked with just from a legal perspective. He's an attorney who'd done all my deals with me early stage and done his own startups, and said, uh, and a few other individuals said, let's come together, let's put together this platform. We'll kind of bear hug these entrepreneurs, give them all the resources we've got, like provide them a whole bunch of strategies, services, fundraising, you know, everything you can imagine. We'll put capital in and let's grow with them. And that was really the beginning of science. Let's put this team together and, and be a strong operational counterparty to a founder. I think what's also what's pretty unique about science is that you are pretty flexible in terms of how you can actually work with entrepreneurs and how you can build companies and that it could be a stu- in kind of the studio model, or it could be maybe more like traditional venture investments on the studio side. Um, and I, and, and I really appreciate how you said how, how you are really kind of interested on the early stage side of really building companies um, from the ground up um, and not just, and not just kind of like writing a check and then you kind of receive back of the company, like made it or didn't make it or you've made your money or didn't make your money. But how, how do you think about, since you've, you know, obviously you started companies, you built companies. How do you think about the key? What's kind of the key difference between incubation and actually actually incubating companies versus ownership and you actually starting your own companies and you being, and you being kind of like the CEO. Well, we, um, we played with all sorts of models. So we've done deals like dollar shave club, obviously where the founder pitches us the idea. We love them. We, we put a whole bunch of support around them, help them hire and, and fund, you know, fund into them, et cetera. And then we definitely have our own companies that we built from scratch. Um, I think the difference is, you know, today, the majority of our deals we do with founders, right? Um, we want other people that are on that mission that have a personal connection to the problem that want to spend the next 10 years plus, you know, driving after becoming giant within whatever selected sector they want to go into. We do a handful of our own deals where we look and we're like, oh, this would be a good company to build. Let's build it. But even if we do that, our goal is to get a dedicated CEO management team in there as fast as possible. Like we can stopgap it at early stage with studio team to kind of keep it running, but we want highly incentivized you know, equitized CEOs that are really running those businesses. Um, so we do very few kind of self, you know, creation and more and more kind of co-development with, with teams. Can you talk to me a little bit about when an entrepreneur comes and maybe pitches you an idea? Um, like for example, like what turned into like Dollar Shave Club. Can you talk to me a little bit about, about like the platform, how you think about the platform of science and how you think about the overall support system and typically what um, founders maybe have like the hardest time with that, that you feel that you can provide them as value? Well, let's see. So, I mean, from our lens, we're looking for not only found, let's assume that you have all the basic qualifications. You've got an awesome founder that's passionately connected to the, to the issue that has some background and experience that would make, make that individual relevant for, for executing this mission. Let's assume they're charismatic. They can attract great talent around them. Let's assume that they've even done some market tests and they have some validation that people want whatever they're going to offer. So the basics of like, okay, a reasonable person to look at. When we look through the lens, kind of my question is, is are we really well suited to kind of level up this individual? Like if we're involved in this, can we really make a difference to the business? So yes, in retail distribution, yes, in social media and marketing, yes, in mobile distribution and social tactics, growth tactics were excellent. Certainly in fundraising, absolutely. Business development for sure. But like if someone comes to me with a next generation SaaS product, we might be great investors for them, but I'm not sure we can make or break the company. You know what I mean? Like we can't get, we don't have a call center set up that can get to every core SaaS client within a week or two to know whether or not the product's relevant. You know, we don't have, you know, we do have some offshore engineering resources that can lend, but I'm looking for areas where we're like, we know the people to call 
to make an absolute difference to this business. And if we're involved and we buy our way in and earn our way in and whatever function that happens, we will spend time doing this and we will get the right people on the phone. We will put the right talent around them. We'll help them recruit the right people. We'll help them raise capital. If it gets up to the scale, we'll build a board, we'll select the bankers, we'll take it public, whatever we need to do, the full journey. And I want to believe that we have the skills to make a difference there versus just somebody, some average investor. So what specifically, when you talk about, um, you know, uh, for example, like maybe like a SaaS business where, you know, you might not have, um, you know, you, you might not be able to maybe add as much value per se to another type of business. What, what category specifically do you find interesting then that you think that you could actually add value in? Well, I think, you know, starting with commerce, you know, direct-to-consumer commerce, we're best of breed at, online Amazon sales, and then in retail, right? So if you have a product you want to put in people's hands that they're going to consume in some form, on shelves, through Amazon, through a website, in, on subscription, we're a great partner for you. Absolutely. We've seen it. We run sales on it. We have data on it. We know all the core people to talk with. We understand manufacturing. We understand how to raise capital for it. Like, and we understand how to sell the company, right? So... Soup to nuts, we're a great partner for that. On marketplaces, I'd say we're excellent on building supply and demand marketplaces. We understand how to build those. We understand how to market them, how to grow them, et cetera. And then on mobile, we have a particular skill around mobile and scaling mobile applications. Um, so those are areas where when we look at this problem, we're like, okay, if we have a great founder or founding team that wants to take on this challenge, we're a nice compliment because we fill in a ton of gaps for them. And then we also typically have the right people for them to hire because we built networks within these specific problems. So those are great problems for us to spend time on. That makes sense, just also based off your um, portfolio. How do you also think about like return profile when it comes to like the like the venture studio model versus the VC fund? Um, and is it harder to raise capital if you go through like the studio, mar uh, the studio model? I mean, I think if, I guess, when I think about returns, you know, we're targeting similar venture level returns. So you're shooting for five to 10 X fund returns in a certain profile. And statistically, I think, you know, I statistically, I think we're going to show that we can probably be at the top 10% of returns. So we feel really good about our return, our return um, targets. I think that it's possible that studio models might have a better return profile than standard venture, because I think our ownership positions are larger and we have more influence over the business, which means that we can probably preemptively invest more effectively um, but I think that's TBD. I mean, there's only a few models like ours out there. So there's not a, you know, there's not a significant amount of data to show whether a, stu a, stu a venture studio model is more effective than a pure venture fund model. Um, but I think that we're absolutely ex incredibly strong performing. So we feel really good about our results. Um, on raising money externally, I don't find that to be a challenge. I mean, we, like I said, since most of our companies were not starting from scratch, we don't dominate the cap table. We're not majority owners. You know, the CEO founding team have, have a ton of equity. By the time that it hits external financing, typically they're at a really strong sense of scale. A lot of stuff's been de-risked from the business. We often have a decent amount of revenue running through the company. So um, I find that the fundraises, when we have companies that work, you know, the fundraises are, are pretty easy. How, that's that's interesting because what I've what I've heard in, a, in just different interviews sometimes, um, VCs are um, less likely to invest in like a studio, like a, a company that came out of a venture studio, just because um, sometimes the cap table looks a bit different than 
than what it would be with just you know the on if it'd be for example the first time an entrepreneur raises and would be less likely to give up when it came to um the equity position that they would need to in order which actually makes sense for vcs i think if you, i mean if you're pulling details from like how rocket internet structured their deals out of europe yeah there was a very rocket heavy dominated cap table and didn't look like a normal startup but i think when you look at a lot of the companies and firms like us that are that are you know running now we look a lot like the, the cap table structure looks, looks a lot more like standard venture, just to be candid. You know, I think maybe you're looking at um, the studio as maybe we did in one round what, what they would have done independently in two rounds. So maybe there's some maybe there's some changes in the way that dilution happens in the early days. But by the time it actually goes to market, like we haven't had anybody come back to us. You know, I can remember the last time where they said, oh, we think we have a cap table problem. And the reality is if we have a great investor and there's a cap table problem, we're going to figure out a way through the problem, right? Like we're not going to turn down a great investor to the cap table problems. And, uh, you know, more often than not, what we get is a founder comes to us and they've developed a great idea, but they've totally screwed their cap table because they didn't have a clear path on how to fundraise. They took all these convertible notes from all these individuals and they signed all these ancillary art, you know, documents around anti-dilution privileges and all these weird control things. And, these like you know super you know super punitive terms and a lot of like we're in a deal right now where we've spent we probably spent three months restructuring their cap table just because it's so screwed up it's unfundable and so our statement to them is like we love the founder we love the concept we as a team see a complete path to scale with them their cap table is so screwed up it's uninvestable in its current form. We will have spent six figures on our side helping them clean up their cap table to get it venture ready. Then they'll basically work with our our venture and you know our studio fund team to kind of actually get some scale and we'll put capital behind it. So you know it's like these things. None of these things are clean walking through the door. You know, and so that that's been a bigger problem for us is the early stage friends and family rounds that have had some really really bad structures. I remember you said how you know the the entrepreneur has to have you know. For example, let's say that they're just awesome founder, passionate, charismatic. Of course, they also have to work with you. That's part of that, that's part of what um, is so interesting about science, and also part of the reason why you started it is because you just want you didn't want to be just that angel that maybe you invest and then not hear from it. What are some qualities from founders when it comes to, or how do you kind of assess that period since you're working so? Um, tightly with the founder and the founding team to make sure that, okay, this is actually like a great partnership. This is the right fit. Well, I tell, I tell you, if, um, if I think the, the, the skill set that we would identify as being a good founder, you know, match for us is actually, I'd argue, just what I'd identify as a good founder skill set. So like some of the best founders I've ever worked with in my life in and outside of science are just really curious individuals and although they might have the arrogance to want to build a business and go disrupt the legacy industry, they also have the intelligence to know that there's a lot of people that learn a lot of things and they're very curious to learn those things. And so I've sat through meetings with super high profile CEOs where at the end of the meeting, I feel like they just stole tons of knowledge from me and I have a deep respect for it. And I think some of the best CEOs I've ever worked with and founders feel like when they're in strategic meetings, they're pulling knowledge into themselves from other people. So they're not arrogant to think, I can't learn anything from anybody and I'm just going to figure out my own way. They're smart enough to be like, oh, I'm going to steal every piece of knowledge I can from anyone that's ever touched any kind of relative, you know, relative component of my business. I'm going to internalize that and then I'm going to be arrogant and I'm going to drive to success. Those individuals we work extremely well with because 
we are a treasure trove of knowledge and skills. So if they come in and they're like, oh, I can use all this. Oh, you all work for me now. Okay, let's go on this journey together. It works really, really well. If they step in and they're like, no, 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 I got this. You don't need to be in my business. I've learned it all. I'm going to figure it all out. That has almost always failed in my mind, whether it's inside science or outside science. And I think that there's like kind of a social construct of like the best founders are super arrogant. They definitely have an arrogance. I definitely agree with that. But they also have a curiosity and that curiosity can drive a ton of special success. And certainly a curious founder can find a way to jump two years forward through intelligence gathering with other individuals. And we're just a big platform for that. So that's what I look for. But that's also what I look for in my personal investing, right? Like, I think it's just a good quality for founders. No, that's fair. I mean, it, it, it's kind of simplifying the entire you know process. It's, it's who do you actually want to work with? Who who do you kind of get energy from? And as well as you obviously believe in terms of like what they're actually building. And of course, them showing that they're passionate and charismatic and enthusiastic. And as you say, just super, super curious to um, uh, to want to succeed. What are some of the best in class practices do you think for operating a venture studio on your side? Um, gosh, a venture studio. There's so few venture studios in my mind, but maybe there's a lot. Um, so best in class practices. I mean, I tell you, like, you need, you need an epic team, you know, and that team in my mind has to have experience building and scaling and hopefully selling companies and succeeding and failing at both. So um, I think you need a lot of experience in there because you're basically saying, you know, you, you, you want to be the predominant voice of mentorship with these founders and if you don't have good advice, you can really screw up companies. So I've seen venture studios formed by people that seem to me like they really don't have the experience to be offering that experience to founders or that advice to founders. And I'd argue that's a recipe for disaster. Um, so first off is you need really experienced great individuals. The second is I think you have to know what you're absolutely great at because, because yeah, I mean, we could all get on, this, on a call and convince ourselves that we'd be absolutely great at SaaS because we can call CEOs of leading companies and convince them to buy our software as a service product. But the reality is like, is that, you know, th th that's just using the network. That's not really great skills. So I think you also have to be very self-reflective of like, what are we absolutely great at? Um, and it's funny, I was on a call this morning with an investor who looked at my background. He's like, well, you must do all software deals. And I'm like, well, I do, I do do a lot of software deals. So I'd be totally honest, like after Dollar Shave Club, we attracted like kind of everything in consumer product and brand disruption. And now our biggest business is a canned water company. And I don't know what to tell you about that. Like, yes, I'm super skilled in software and I'm super skilled in building the next generation social platforms. But right now we have an insane engine as it relates to CPG and I don't want to ignore that. So we have to be self-reflective on what are we great at and what is the market receiving, right? And if right now we can step in and just carve out, you know, double digit percents of market share off of these different categories in CPG, we should might as well lean into it because we're really good at it, right? So strong team, incredible experience, self-reflective on what we're absolutely best at. And then we have to serve our founders. It's a 24 hour job. Like, you know, we want to be, you know, in that war with them. We want to be on Slack with them. We want to be talking with them and available to them. And I want to make sure that when they reach out with a need, we're, you know, we're immediate on our response to them. So we're not passive. Like we're super active with them. So I'm, I'm glad you brought up CPG and definitely want to dive a lot more into CPG and especially, you know, liquid death. But first start off with CPG you know, CPG, it's not trendy right now to invest in CPG. It's not like an area that is, you know, um, I know that right now, like AI, for example, is very, very trendy. Um, why, why do you continue to invest in CPG? What is the opportunity that you, that you see? Because I've had like a number of, of investors that have come on the show that used to invest in CPG and now they, and now they don't because, you know, ke uh, um, 
um, I'm sure I'm sure you probably know many of the reasons. You know, CAC is crazy on uh, online. Um, the the D 2 C channel can you actually scale um, to to a certain degree on D 2 C? Um, why why right now do you why do you still invest in CPG and what do you think about the state of CPG currently from investment lens? Let's see, probably about like seven or eight years ago, we developed this theory that the American public was gro- growing in distrust with legacy brands. The way we used to always say it was like, if it's a product that you grew up and you remember was in your cabinets or under your sink, today you probably feel like it was toxic and you probably don't want to consume it as an adult, right? And I think that these legacy giant, you know, consumer product good companies or packaged good companies have, have typically, you know, optimized against margin and used a lot of really low quality goods or low quality ingredients that have probably done the U.S. population no favors at all. I think it's tied to mass levels of obesity and health concern. And I think newer, younger consumers want new brands that they trust and they connect to um, with functional ingredients and things that provide them with better consumption experiences. So there's an overall trend where I think there's massive distrust on legacy brands and a big interest in new products, right? Beverage, food, for sure, right? So I think that's a huge trend. Then there is this wave of the direct-to-consumer story, which worked really effectively until Facebook you know, and Apple and all the IDFA targeting changes happened. What, what happened, though, at that moment was investors were like, oh, DDC economics are upside down. I'm going to walk, right? That was really that, – that didn't mean that DDC that was dead. And that didn't mean that consumers don't want new products. It just meant that the Facebook arbitrage of the CAC to LTV structure – would probably not work the way it was working, right? So we just watched it carefully. And one of our investments was with a company that manages a big TikTok TikTok agency. And we kind of just said, well, someone's going to figure it out on TikTok, right? And lo and behold, six months later, suddenly there's, you know, companies doing million, million plus months off of TikTok marketing with positive CAC to LTV ratios, right? Suddenly there's companies launching exclusive on Amazon pumping EBITDA, like through Amazon marketing, Suddenly, there's companies figuring out traditional retail distribution, right? Now, all these investors are like, DDC doesn't work. I'm not interested. It's like, yeah, but there's actually bigger markets over here. Like, retail distribution is really, really big. Like, really, really big. Um, And so suddenly, we were finding all these other platforms to find mass scale and growth. All these investors were shying away because the DDC software economics weren't working. Um, But that doesn't mean the opportunity wasn't there. So we just leaned heavier in, right? And we went to our companies and be like, fine. DDC doesn't work as effectively. Great. Let's push on the Amazon hard. Let's go into retail distribution. Let's find other ways to do it. Let's focus on TikTok. And that did work, right? And we did find growth and we continually do. And then I think the other beauty of it is they, you know, we're in a sector where the legacy players are really, really rich with capital and they'd much prefer to buy than build, which means that we have a disruptive sector through standard tactics with legacy players that want to buy innovation and you can get to really big numbers. And by the way, the public markets like the multiples. So I look at this being like, why wouldn't we lean heavy into this? This feels like a great market to me. Um, but I think investors shying away were really just because they were paying attention to Facebook economics and they didn't want to potentially explore retail distribution or other tactics. I think it was a mistake. I think also just for for a period, just because you know CACs were so low um, that I, th- I feel like investors, especially the ones that kind of came from tech and not from you know, CPG and, and kind of uh, didn't maybe quite um, weren't, um, I guess, trained in like the economics of CPG um, that they thought of D2C brands more so as like tech 
investments where like the, the multiples m- look a lot more like technology multiples when really it's just a channel, right? It's not an actual, you know, business um, overall. Like, it, like, and of course now, um, now the big saying that I hear a lot of times in my podcast, and I'm sure you hear it a lot of time is you got to go omni channel. You got to go retail. You got to look at, you know, what, what are kind of different channels for you? Um, uh, so that, that makes a ton of sense. Walk me through how you made the investment um, in, in liquid death and how you met Mike's Cesario. So we, um, you know, you know, a long time ago, I was advising Evan Spiegel early days of Snap. Peter was super close to the Yellow Incubator, and Peter gets some call one day, and they're like, "Hey, we have this company pitch us. Probably not right for Yellow. We think it'd be great for you guys." And lo and behold, it's like Mike and his partner show up in the office, and I'm, and you know, they throw a can on my desk, and they're like, you know, a plastics destroying the world. B, um, we think that the younger generations deserve something better than Aquafina when they're like at a concert and they don't want to drink alcohol. Um, you know, and C, by the way, like there's this, there's this really, really cool brand that we developed, Liquid Death, that kind of calls back to old days of like skater punk culture that we think would really, you know, connect to consumers. Um, and we saw it honestly immediately. We were like, okay, we 100% love this. We immediately engaged. Um, you know, I think early days, it, it for, for me, you know, just, you know, personally, I don't drink alcohol and I go to concerts and holding Aquafina feels really stupid. And these guys were like, Hey, you know, if you're at the, and it happened to be, it was like right near the time of the Woolsey fire. And like, we were at, we had been hosting this like Red Hot Chili Peppers, um, you know, benefit concert for Woolsey fire victims from Malibu. And I was there and I was holding Aquafina and I was like, Oh my God, these guys are like completely spot on. Um, this just feels, you know, there's gotta be something better basically. So we leaned heavily into them, right? And early days, we did push D2C and then we bridged into Amazon and then early days into, into Whole Foods. And lo and behold, you know, people totally connected with the brand. And then Mike C, who you know, um, you know, is probably one of the greatest marketers of our time. Like he just continually is putting out brand hits and he has a complete understanding of what the vision of Liquid Death is and he really doesn't stray from it. Like he's, he's super dis, you know, disciplined with it. And so super pleasure watching him build that brand. Yeah, no, I I had a similar experience as well. Like I also don't drink alcohol. Um and um and I love I actually just love like flat water. Um like only recently I actually got into like sparkling water. But I was at South by Southwest last year and I was also holding like an Aquafina or um or a Deer Park at a at a bar and just looking like, you know, so out of like just so out of it, right? Just holding one of these things while like talking to people and stuff like that. I remember telling like Marissa Bertha uh, of that story, who who, who she's a uh, VP of strategy at at Liquid Vest, and she's like, a hundred percent. That's why we exist. You know, that's that's one of the 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 many use uh, use cases in terms of why we're there. Um, how did you how did you think overall in terms of because Liquid Death obviously it grew super fast, raised raised a ton of capital. Had like, which is it was kind of pretty different in terms of what you know CPG um, brands are kind of being advised at least today. Kind of grow, grow slow and carefully. Why did you think it makes sense in terms of um, that or the opportunity that you saw to grow as quickly as it as it made sense for for Liquid Death? Well, listen, I mean, I think like we we saw just initial fast brand momentum. Um, we wanted to be absolutely everywhere, so we leveraged heavily into the team, and we obviously pushed for more distribution would be all the stores. We wanted to capture that initial growth of momentum. And, you know, and I think with the team, it's like the, the growth of the Stillwater um, doesn't surprise me. I think the risks the company took is when they jumped into flavor waters and then when they jumped into, into iced teas, those were really early big risks. Like 
we had advisors that were like, why are you even thinking of launching flavors right now? Like let, let that still water get to be a hundred million in revenue and then we'll deal with sparkling. But they had such an epic team around them and they understood how the sales would work and they understood how to scale it on shelves. And they were like, nope, we're just, we're going to grow this to count. And they were so disciplined because we kept getting calls from big, you know, big companies that were like, we want to partner with you guys on the energy drink. Let's do an energy drink. And they're like, look, energy drinks have epic marketing. Like we don't need to go and we can't beat Red Bull. These guys are epic. Like Red Bull's unbelievable, right? Monster, you know, they spend a ton on marketing. They're like, but iced tea, you know, sleepy category, super over sugared, really bad for you product, right? Old legacy, you know, those guys came out with the iced teas and like, I mean, I just can't even believe it. Like I watch it in the household because they got kids and they have their friends over and we burn, like they always drink the water. They love the sparkling. The iced teas just flow out of this house. Like it's completely unbelievable. Um, so I think, I think that's the, I think like, that's just a credit to that team. Like they took early risks in the skew growth and it worked out really, really favorably. And, uh, it's kudos to them. No, that's that. No, that's great. And, and, and that makes a lot of sense in terms of, you know, need, needing, you know, a ton of capital in order to, to, to release new SKUs, release new, new flavors and to go into new product categories. As you look at it now, in terms of Liquid Death and where they are in terms of their trajectory, now I believe that they're at the last fund, uh, fundraiser. They're at like a, I think they're they're valued at seven hundred million. Um, as a, still a cash flow negative business, if they were to IPO, how do you believe that they will continue driving value to the shareholder and not end up like a Vital Proteins, for example, or a Laird? I mean, we you know we look at I look at Celsius really heavily. Like Celsius has had a phenomenal run in the public markets. Um, you know, we look at just general door growth. They've had a massive improvement on their net margin. They've shifted their entire, you know, production to the sense of the U.S. Um, so we, you know, the reality is like, I don't think of them as a, a, as a company that's losing capital. I think of this company as actually going to be making a ton of money. Um, you know, they haven't even touched international. Like there's, there's massive growth for them. Like, Let's assume, even, even if they didn't expand SKUs, but I have to assume they're going to expand SKUs. I mean, like that team, that's, they're super good at what they do. So I assume they're eventually going to expand SKUs. But they still, are, they still have so much door expansion to do, right? They still have so much territory expansion to do. And their margins are fantastic. So like, like I have zero concerns there. You know, I think more about, I do watch Celsius really closely. I mean, Celsius has been, I would argue, originally a quiet company that's become worth a lot in the public markets. And if I look at early days liquid death, we outpace them on a number of metrics. So, um, so I'm, ex I'm excited if they decide to go that direction. Yeah, got it. That makes sense. I mean, I remember like there was a quote from Mark Rampola, um, who's also been on the show, um, and I know is also like kind of a, a, a early investor in liquid death about him saying how he's never seen a brand when it came to velocities in convenience and also grocery. Like he hasn't seen anything like it in terms of liquid death, and, that, and that's what for him was was most interesting. So um, I'm excited to see. I'm I, I'm excited to see the future. That's awesome. When an entrepreneur comes to you, I mean, obviously, when Mike C came to you, you you, you kind of got it. You you under you understood in terms of what we were trying to do, but. To you, let's say you have a very charismatic founder, maybe check, uh, check all the boxes in that, in that area. What makes a truly great idea in your mind? Well, I mean, you know, I, I think customers make a truly great idea in my mind, right? Like there's a lot of great ideas in my mind with no customers. And I'd probably argue they're probably not truly great ideas, right? Like, like if no one was using open AI, you'd probably be like, well, I guess it's not that great of an idea, right? I think what's, what's sometimes magic for founders is they see opportunity and need where others don't. 
You know, like we used to do things on saying, okay, well, let's look at goods and services that have the worst net promoter score, right? It's like, I remember the early days of Uber and thinking like, you're right, I hate cabs. Like, I remember going to cabs in New York and like they smelled like cigarettes and they would only take cash and then they were angry and I felt like I was doing them some disservice by even getting in the cab and I sometimes felt unsafe in the cab and I was like, this might be one of the worst consumer experiences for me is sitting in the back of a New York taxi cab. This was like 20 years ago or something. Then suddenly getting into Uber, I'm like, oh my God, this is incredible. You know, like there's not a chain smoking person in the front that hates me because I want to use a credit card. Like amazing, right? But it's not as simple to say, well, it's easy. We'll just like cycle through every low net promoter score on the planet. And those are the biggest opportunities. You know, in certain cases, I don't think people would have said, well, bottled water has a net promoter score that's negative for me. You know, they wouldn't have probably scored it that way. But the reality is every time I pick up a piece of disposable plastic, I feel like garbage. Like I was in the airport yesterday flying home and I bought a drink and it was a disposable thing of plastic. And when I put it in the trash can, I just felt horrible about myself. Like I was like, how could I have done this? Like I shouldn't have bought this. Like I know I was thirsty, but couldn't I have found a water fountain? This is terrible, right? Now granted, the net voter score wouldn't say something like humans hate buying plastic, right? But somebody saw that, right? So what I think is interesting is when founders have a lens on the consumer behavior, you know, and say, this is something that we think we can make the experience way better. And once we make it better, you'll look back at your historical experience and realize you really hated it. Yeah, no, that that makes um, a lot of sense. Um, I mean, also... I also, what I think is also like kind of a, uh, how I think about what, what could also make a truly great idea is the kind of the different levels of marketing that you can do with a brand. Like, like when I think about even like liquid death, for example, um, you know, kind of like the death of plastic, like I almost think that that's almost kind of secondary in their marketing. It's kind of just so like out there in terms of what they do. And that's kind of maybe the primary, I mean, obviously it really depends, you know, who's, who's watching it just in my view. And so the kind of the, the different kind of depth that you can do in your marketing that also could be like quite like an interesting. No, I agree. I mean, it was similar to Tesla's story, right? It's like if they had made a very slow electric car, no one would have been very excited. Right. Like if the car looked like garbage and was slow, you'd be like, well, well, you know, so I think at the end of the day, consumers are somewhat vain. You know, they want great products that look good and make them look cool and make them feel better. Um, and then if they're also environmentally friendly and better for the planet, they're super happy about it. Very few, in my mind, U.S. consumers will um, switch their consumption behavior for something that's better for the planet unless it's also a better experience, you know. The reality is they, they pretty much won't, right? Like, um, and so it's like, I think the challenge to entrepreneurs is like, how do you do something that's that's a great brand and a great product and also great for the planet or great for the secondary thesis that you're bringing? And at the end of the day, you know, you can then really do some some incredible change. What have you learned, thinking about, you know, Dollar Shave Club, Liquid Death, what have you learned about how to create viral content or really create a buzz from, you know, videos or, or kind of other forms of marketing? Well, all the, I think, you know, I think the best campaigns, campaigns, and let's use the campaign term in a very broad sense, right? Not a classic campaign, but the greatest campaigns that we've done have been really, really non-traditional, you know? So I, I it's like liquid death one time took or t- twice now they've taken 
the hate comments people leave them on Amazon and turn them into records and then publish the albums on Spotify. It's like Liquid Death's Greatest Hates album. I mean, I'd argue it's an epic campaign. It's completely non-traditional. Um, I, I think when we see people do things that you would just really not expect and they do it in environments that are typically not the type of environment you, you, you would have something like this done, you can get really, really phenomenal results. You have to break away from traditional thinking though, right? Like it can, and it has to be dynamic and it has to be cheap and it has to be fast. You know, it's like, we want to see groups that are throwing out new campaign concepts every week until they find, you know, what sticks. And I think it all has to be tied back to a mission, to a vision, to a theory, to a theme, you know? So it's like, you know, if you think to yourself like liquid, like we all at this point kind of know what liquid death stands for. Right. And maybe people would, maybe people would verbally describe it differently, but we all know what it really stands for. Most brands, I don't know what they stand for. Right. Like I really don't. And so if you start with an ethos of what the company really stands for, then the brand and the language and the campaigns kind of can build off of that. And you can have a lot of people then spread out kind of building culture off that known ethos. Um, but if you just have a brand with pretty images and they run campaigns through third-party agencies and hope that it's going to get, and people are going to wear a t-shirt, I just don't think you get that. You know, people are wearing stuff on t-shirts because they believe in what the company believes into, believes in or the founder believes, you know, otherwise it's just kind of fake a fake campaign. How do you think in terms of like maybe founder led brands where the founder might be like the center um, face that the brand is affiliated with like one person um, as opposed to brands where um, obviously the founder is still setting the vision, but they're, they're kind of more so like behind the scenes per se. I mean, I don't love founder led brands um, because I think sometimes they feel like they're more about the founder than they are the brand. And I think if the founder lends their vision to the brand and lets the brand go and find its find its way off of that founder's ethos, then it's about everybody. It's about the fans of that brand and how they become part of their community versus just being about the founder, right? That's not to say, again, you can't build a big business and make a lot of money off of a founder being the face of that brand. It just interests me less. You know, I think that companies get bigger. Like I would argue, you know, it's like we can take Apple, for example, like, and, you know, maybe you know, Steve Jobs obviously was the face of Apple, but I don't think Steve, I don't, and maybe Apple in a certain sense was about Steve Jobs, it was about so much more, right? Like it did, I didn't feel like when I was buying Apple products, Steve's face had to show up on my load screen or something. Like I didn't feel that that was being pushed, but there's certainly brands out there that are complete, you know, celebrity driven or influencer driven or just influential individuals driven brands. And you're kind of buying into their brand and there might be great businesses. I just think it's less interesting. I think I think too what's what's tough about individually led brands is that it's also more risky I'd imagine from an investor perspective because you know if they're if for example something were to happen to that individual or you know um they they did something you know dumb or or whatever it is then 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 you know that can really have like a it, it could have like a severe impact in terms of the brand itself. Yeah, it's a super high risk, right? And I think like if you build a great brand, you'll attract a bunch of talent, you let that talent flow in and out of the brand uh you know, that you can get a bunch of, you can still get the benefit of that, but not be solely reliable on a singular individual. So we generally advise against it for sure. How, how then do you think about if, if it's not like a, let's say it's not like talent partnering or founding the brand. How do you think about collaborating with talent? We love collaborating with talent. I mean, the biggest campaigns from liquid, not, well, some of the biggest campaigns of liquid death have definitely been with talent. Right. Um, so I think that's been super great. We love talent as investors. Like, I mean, science is a huge network of talent that invests 
directly into our deals. We like it when they're investors, honestly, in the deals. We're happy to give them stock. We're happy to find other ways to work with them. But you know, I think them putting capital in a deal just puts it at a different level for them and makes it so they pay attention. Um, so I think that's important. Like we want partners with skin in the game with us. So that's that's important for us. But no, I mean, we, we love doing that. What's one thing that you would change about venture capital if you could? Well, listen, I think like venture capital in the in the in the you know in the spectrum of of capital that's allocated into private markets, venture capital is tiny, right? Like we are we are dealing with like the last bit of money that large investors have to put to work. Um, I think. I think, I think we're thought of as like the fun money in a weird way of like, well, these guys are doing crazy stuff and let's just see what happens. It'll be wild. Like it'll be wild. Get these great stories. Um, I think that's because a venture capital is not really transparent. You know, um, it's really hard to know how different VC firms perform. Um, so even as a, even as a venture capitalist myself and as an investor in lots of stuff, like, like, I think we're doing great. Um, but like, I don't really have a full index. I know exactly where we sit because there's, I would argue there's not full transparency. The second piece of it is that I think because that lack of transparency makes it hard for LPs, I think big investors um, look at this and like, it's a little hard to judge. And the third is that we have, you know, we have very difficult um, rules around liquidity, right? So, you know, you put capital with a firm like ours and we're like, look, we're going to build big businesses when we sell them, we get checks back. But there's not a healthy secondary market for all of us. And so even right now, I have people all the time, they're like, I want to buy a stock for liquid death. I'm like, there's nothing I can do for you right now. Like we don't have a fundraise open and we're not out there like circling secondary transactions. So I'm really sorry, right? There's a bunch of people over time that tried to create markets or marketplaces to allow liquid secondary transactions. The reason why this is important, just to be candid, is we would have a lot more innovation if there was a lot more free capital flowing into VC, right? And when you think about it, the reason why is because, A, I think it's less transparent than it should. And, uh, you know, B, there's this massive lack of liquidity. And so if there was a healthy pool of liquidity and there's more transparency on, on how we value our companies and how we value our funds, I think you'd find more capital coming from traditional investors, which would just create more growth. And then we'd have more innovation. So I'd argue, like, everything we're doing, we should have more, right? There should be more startups. There should be more capital flowing the startups, be more transparency to those, more secondaries, more liquidity. And I think we'll innovate faster, right? Um, that's one big problem. Like the other problem I'd argue is that it's very stage-based. So it's amazing, obviously, when someone like Elon can go and take on these giant, you know, these giant efforts that require massive, massive amounts of capital. For the average everyday entrepreneur, I'd argue that's really, really hard to do because VCs are like C, A, B, C, show me progress, show me growth, show me revenue, show me customer traction. There's specific metrics we kind of want to see. Makes it harder if you're like, we're really going to take a big bet and it's really not going to show itself for a long time, that's okay. Um, but it restricts some of the things we're all going after and probably pushes us down to kind of companies that have you know clear metrics on traction in a shorter period of time. And again, that's really just to fit in with the way that capital works within within the structures. So maybe that's a needed, you know, a needed problem right now, and maybe it reduces our risk level, which I completely understand, but it also probably reduces some of the concepts that we might explore. How are you feeling overall about like the state of these, the state of investing today? And have you changed at all how you invest today as you compared to how you um, how you think about investing uh, last year or the year before? I think from science's perspective, we're doing the same we've always done. You know, we're finding early stage founders, we're investing at really really early valuations, we're staying super close to them. Our practice is very much the same. 
Um, I think for a later stage, it's a completely different game right now. I think there's a lot of funds on the sidelines. You know, I think they're nervous. I think the MA environment is questionable. Obviously, the public markets are maybe recovering, maybe not. Um, so there's just a lot of volatility, I think, you know, that, that would kind of impact those later stage funds. For us, it's the same. Um, you know, uh, so so there has not been a lot of change the way that way that we frankly operate. We certainly warn our CEOs that, you know, the the standards for external fundraises are higher now than they probably were 6, 12, 18, 24 months ago, which means that they should be more cautious on their burn. They should have greater customer traction. Frankly, though, like, I think that warnings all the time. You know, it's like, I think all of our founders should be cautious on their burn all the time. I think that they should have more customer traction before they raise all the time. So that's no news from me. Um, you know, I, I believe I'm building companies that have really strong business fundamentals and that doesn't start with like mass levels of burn. So like we're, we're, so we're generally operate, you know, recommend, you know, kind of a little bit more of a traditional approach to the way that they, you know, figure out their PML. Um, but so for me, there's been, I think for, for science, there hasn't been that much of a change. I think though, for the overall industry, there has been a lot of cautiousness that's obviously hit everyone right now. How do you think about your decision making when it comes to um, if you should follow on and actually exercise your your, your pro rata rights today? Um, since you know there's are a number of companies, I'm not sure if there's any of your portfolio companies that are currently um, uh, experiencing this with doing down rounds or bridge rounds. But how do you kind of assess whether if if you do have any and and, and if hypothetically that that happens, if you should you know kind of follow on or not? So you know we have a pretty holistic view so obviously you know we're typically talking to our top CEOs every, every you know at least once a week if not multiple times a week we have visibility into the performance of the business whatever we consider is the kind of core you know the core performance metrics um, sometimes at a real time basis sometimes daily sometimes weekly um, so for us if somebody's like getting low on cash or they're going to have to do a restructure or a down round or something we're we're going to be well aware of it before it hits our inbox so there shouldn't be any surprises for us and we should be well aware and before it hits our inbox box, we've probably already made the decision of whether this is going to be a core company for us. And we're simply doing it through the lens of our LPs. You know, is this is this the company? Is this the one? Is this one of the few that are going to have breakouts within Fund X? You know, do we want to increase our exposure? Um, we might have some view of like, well, how close are they to their next funding round? And is the bridge really a bridge? Because sometimes there's a lot of people marketing bridges, but I argue they're bridged nowhere. And so we're going to be super cautious about that. Um, but again, we're coming in with a disproportionate amount of information, typically more information than most board members and definitely more information than most investors. Um, so nothing should really catch us off guard. Right. And, you know, and if it's a great company and we believe it's going to be a breakout, we'll go all in with the founder. Right. My final question to you, Mike, what's one book that's inspired you personally and one book that's inspired you professionally? In life, my wife wrote an epic parenting book and she's a doctor. She's a psychologist. Um, and uh, and so her name is Dr. Jennifer Jones and you can look her up. She's to totally awesome. And so obviously in my life, I would say that my life's parental philosophy is viewed through her lens in her book. So that's probably the most transformative book in my life. But that's because it's a reflection of our, our family. Well, as a new parent, I will have to check it out, clearly. Yeah, well, send, send me uh, your address. We'll get you, we'll get you coffee. Appreciate that. Appreciate yeah. that. Well, Mike, thanks so much for your time. This has been a lot of fun. No problem. Take care. And there you have it. It was a pleasure chatting with Mike. Mike, thanks again so much for coming on the pod. If you're enjoying this podcast, highly recommend subscribing to the newsletter at theconsumervc.com where you'll receive all new episodes 
straight to your inbox and a weekly recap of all the consumer deals that are happening. If you're listening to this on Spotify, Apple, or YouTube, please hit that subscribe button. And if you can shoot a review, if you're enjoying the show, that'd be great. Thank you. Until next time. Bye.